Welcome to the Help One Child podcast. This is the show that equips adoptive and foster parents with information from experts in the fields of trauma and attachment. Our hope is that with every episode, you will find helpful insights and practical parenting tips. My name is Kristen Wynn Reyes, and I am your host today as we cover the topic of managing aggressive trauma behaviors. I'm delighted that our guest today is Eva Gonzalez, a licensed marriage and family therapist in Contra Costa County. Eva is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She has over a decade of clinical experience and received her Bachelor of Science in Psychology at University of California, Davis, and her Master of Arts in Counseling at Argosy University. Eva has had experience working with all ages in multiple locations, with adults, individuals, and couple work, in her office, in school-based therapy, in order to help students better access their education. She has also worked doing therapy with juvenile offenders, incarcerated, and in their homes with their families. She's also done behavioral therapy with children in the community. Eva has spent much of her career in community mental health, focusing on youth aged 4 to 21 years old and their families in a variety of different modalities, such as play therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, neurofeedback, systemic therapy, functional family therapy, trauma drama, and attachment self-regulation and competency, or ARC. Most of this work she's done was focused on supporting resiliency in the face of complex and ongoing trauma. Although Eva has extensive training in evidence-based practices and using the data to direct treatment, she is willing to apply whatever therapeutic tool will help the client in front of her. Eva enjoys playing with her two sons and her yellow lab, writing music, singing, playing guitar, dancing, working out, talking shop, and going on adventures with her husband. How fun. (laughs) Um, Eva, we are so glad to have you today. And thank you for being a guest on our Bite Size Encouragement podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. (laughs) And I had... um, a couple questions I wanted to ask you just to add to that amazing bio that you shared. If you want to share anything else um, about your background and the work you do with families dealing with um, childhood trauma. Sure. Um, well, I, I do a lot of work with Spanish speaking families as well. Uh, that has been ongoing since, since I started, basically, um, I had lived a year in Mexico and then, um, on top of visiting other countries that also speak Spanish. Uh, but then I was able to apply that in my practice as well, uh, which has been, um, a, a big blessing for me too. That is wonderful. That has always been a dream of mine to be bilingual, and I am not. (laughs) That is just such a gift to get to work with um, the diversity of different people that speak different languages. And I was particularly curious um, from your bio about what is functional family therapy or trauma drama, because um, they both sound so interesting, and we have a lot of trauma drama in my home, but I have a feeling it might be a, a different therapeutic approach. And then yes. I have a feeling we might also have families listening that um, may feel a bit dysfunctional at this time and would really love functional family therapy. So what are those? I'm really curious. Sure. Well, uh, trauma drama is 
basically, I don't know if you're familiar like with improv or any anyone who has done any drama knows like drama exercises and those things kind of get you into your body and out of your head a bit. And so incorporating some of those into treatment, it can be done uh, individually or with groups, better with groups, uh, and then eventually kind of working your way into a narrative that processes the drama or processes the trauma with the drama. Wow. Okay. I know, I know I have dramatic children in my home (laughs) and we may have others. So that sounds like a really, really fascinating modality to use. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of fun. Yes. Um, And then functional family therapy is an evidence-based practice. It was originally developed to work with kids that are in the juvenile justice system and their families. A lot of what they learned incarcerated or at risk uh, has been either like community driven or environmentally driven, a lot of trauma in the communities and that sort of thing. And uh, basically there was a lot of evidence over time that they gathered doing some formal research in a modality that focused on motivation because a lot of the FFT functional family therapy treatments were uh, mandated. So not everyone signed up. We're like, Hey, help me. Oh yeah. <laughs> and um, so focusing on motivation, giving some solid skills in the middle and then making sure it's something that's sustainable. And it's really something that is short term as well. So it should be like 12 to 16 or 18 sessions. So it's pretty fast, but it's intensive. And the idea is to transfer anything that might have been learned while um, incarcerated, if there's any access to mental health there and that sort of thing, and to translate that into the environment. There have been some offshoots that have included uh, working with kids that are also in the foster system and their families as well. Um, those are not as um, prevalent because uh, there's a, there seems to be some more funding and probation than foster care often. <laughs> so, uh, But there has been some uh, inquiries into that and seeing if that can be something located. The, the way that people are certified to do that, though, it is not the individual clinician. It is actually the site because it is very team-oriented with the clinicians as well because it is... Um, it is a, a modality and a population that often incurs kind of secondary trauma as well. So that teamwork within the clinicians is very important as well for that support for them to provide. Yeah. Good, <laughs> good wow. Service for everyone else. Yeah, that does. That sounds incredible. Thank you. Um, and you know, we're here to talk about aggressive trauma behaviors today in particular. Can you share with our listeners, our foster adoptive relative caregiver parents, a bit about the neurophysiology behind aggressive trauma behaviors? Like what's going on there? Yes. So depending on when the trauma occurred and what kind of trauma as well. So if it was like physical injury, if it was neglect, um, that sort of thing, depending on when it happened in development. So if it was neuro, if it was in the first six months, if it was under two, if it was two to five, those, those timeframes also are timeframes for specific areas of development in the brain. So what happens is you may end up with a part of the brain that is a little underdeveloped or a little overdeveloped. And then the responses become something that are reliant upon that structure and the the neural pathways that have been created at the time. 
So you might be seeing more internalized behaviors or both often more externalized behaviors, which means acting out and those aggressive behaviors that you see. Those are usually the squeaky wheels <laughs> that people notice. Yes. And what about in utero? Same. It Same. just depends so, on the developmental time. Yeah, it does. Okay. And how can um, affect management and intentional wellness affects help both the caregiver and the child or children in your home? Well, children are set up to get all of their cues from their primary caregiver. And so if the caregiver is not regulated, is not able to control their own emotions, not able to realize that it's not personal, if there is that aggressive behavior towards them, then their cue is they read that and then they act accordingly to how their brain has has been formed at that point. The good news is that there can be correction within the brain. So the brain is still plastic, as we like to say, which means you can still create new neural pathways. And the more often that the caregiver is able to come from a place of intentional wellness, to come from a centered place, to come from a place of peace <laughs> in that trauma and in that drama and in all of the torment that's happening, yes. then the child is able to have a corrective experience, which literally is correcting the neural pathways in the brain. It did not happen overnight to get to that point, which means it will also take time and corrective experience after corrective experience to bring the brain back to a place of equilibrium. Right. And I could imagine if um, the parent has a struggle with their own childhood or um, life uh, trauma or uh, dysregulation or um, unhealthy patterns in their own life that that can be a really challenging definitely combination so important to whatever whatever is needed for that intentional wellness it it feels like it's taking away from all the needs around a caregiver it actually is helping it's amplified in a positive way if you are able to take some whatever it is space if you are able to take some time to breathe if you are able to take a little more sleep if you are able to rely on a partner or another family outside to help with those things so that you're not carrying that entire burden and also you're able to be strong enough to carry what it is you do need to carry okay I love that it sounds like another invitation into self-care that it's not selfish Literally. it's not yes. selfish it's actually necessary right yes and that's why I think the shift from like self-care to intentional wellness is like what do you think bubble baths self-care you're like no but you do need a shower sometimes a shower is that intentional wellness because you haven't been able to in 30 days because you're handling the chaos right right okay I love that intentional wellness and that feels like something maybe more people could buy into then it's a shift in our mindset of how we think of that yes I like that um, what are different levels of aggression and, um, then appropriate interventions to apply at each level? As we talk about aggressive behaviors, what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah. Well, it can be anything from verbal aggression to unintentional aggression, kind of that like, I don't know where my body is in time and space, um, to what feels very physical and very intentional as well. Um, all of that is an overactive alarm system for the child with trauma. Uh, and understandably, the caregiver may, may also experience a level of trauma from that too. 
So being able to realize, okay, is this the kid ignoring me? Is this the kid being hypervigilant? Is this the child um, just responding with an elephant-sized reaction to a mouse-sized problem? Is being able to kind of assess where the child is at will also help with that attentional wellness for the caregiver because they will not take it personally at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of it might feel like they're trying to gain authority or get up the hierarchy. In fact, part of that is them realizing that they need some control over the situation and they don't feel like they can control themselves, let alone control what's happening outside. So levels of aggression being unintentional to ignoring to verbal to physical aggression. And if it is unintentional, definitely maybe bringing a little attention to what's happening for the child. Like even my own child, I will say, Hey, be aware of where your body is in time and space (laughs) because they're not (laughs) sometimes, um, to ignoring, um, sometimes they are just lost in thought or their brain is on other things. So if you're able to make that eye contact or have some sort of visual cue or call and response where they are able to, to like repeat a direction or that sort of thing. Verbal aggression. Uh, if you are able to be a detective on where your child's triggers are, like let's say they start mouthing off or calling you names, if you you then need to like rise up to that, or can't is it something that you can ignore and redirect? Often, if you're able to ignore and redirect, that tide will fall back. Um, there may be a push to, especially if people are trying new things. So if there are new things, there will be testing those waters and the kid will, their alarm system might actually kick up a bit as well. So keeping that in mind, if people are trying new things or trying any of these interventions. Um, also physical aggression. Uh, I referenced thinking about it as like a medical condition because it is, it's their brain has developed a specific neural pathway that protected them as whatever it was through the trauma, but it is maladaptive now. And so think of it like they're having a seizure. Think of it like they're having, what is it that you need to do to keep them safe? Right. Mm -hmm. Typically, even when people are having seizures, you're not supposed to like grab them and hold them down and do the whole like movie thing, winter tongue or whatever. You're supposed to like give them space and make sure that they're not able to hit their heads and that sort of thing. Same. Like if you're able to, with a physically aggressive child, make sure that they are safe, but you are removed and safe from the situation as well, or other children around are removed and safe from the situation. That is the key. And then not, not getting rid of consequences, continuing with like natural consequences, of course, but also not coming for a full lecture and understanding and processing until their frontal lobe has come back online because that is what happens. The frontal lobe that makes all those good decisions and has conversation and language. And even the personality kind of turns off when they are having that response of trauma where they're suddenly fight, flight, or freeze. And they've kicked into fight. It sounds like. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, you talk about consequences. There's, some exploration by uh, some practitioners or some um, experts in the field that um, consequences look different um, for trauma behavior if it's something the child doesn't have 
mastery or control over. And I think this is kind of a, a ongoing discussion and, and there's lots of different schools of thought. Can you kind of speak into how, um, if we're treating it as a medical condition or as something, um, trauma related, how, how do we then manage and navigate consequences in that? Yes. Well, it may, it's a lot of it's in the delivery, right? Uh So let's say kid gets angry, chucks a vase at the wall or whatever glass object you happen to think was pretty and shatters it. Uh Um, well, if they had a seizure and knocked it over too, same thing would have happened, right? Um, Uh it's all in your delivery. So your anger is not a consequence. That is not a consequence. Now, if they get later in life, if people don't understand, relational issues may happen. But right now, you are trying to create a corrective experience. So pulling your emotion back, you can have your emotions. You can be really upset about that. But directing it at the child is not a consequence. What is a natural consequence, either if they were having a seizure or if they were having a trauma related behavior is somehow they need to fix it, replace it. You can come alongside them and help them put it back together. That sort of thing, like making it right in that, but keeping in mind that anger is not a consequence. And especially if there's some sort of attachment piece, like being present through it, if possible, if it's not too triggering, depending on like, if you need to be present in the room, you need to be present next to them if they're comfortable, like laying a hand as they're putting it together, being present is, is most helpful as well. If it's not too triggering. And could you say more about like what anger isn't a consequence? What do you mean by that? (laughs) I often see parents like yell with the idea that their child will learn that that's not appropriate. Um, (laughs) But instead, that's modeling for them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You respond when you feel uh, offended by someone, basically. Mm -hmm. And so yelling or um, giving them the silent treatment or things that might um, just putting putting the caregiver, putting themselves in check and being like, okay, this kid is not doing this on purpose against me. And it is hard. It is hard to do that because a lot of that advice might have been thrown at you, Mm -hmm. right? So how do you not take that personal? But if you're able to think of it as a medical condition, realizing that, that, that anger, that face, that, you know, the chancla, like whatever it is that, that you might have grown up with, like at this point we're past the, like, you know, you can't be your child. Okay, great. And then people don't feel like they have a tool. So they've often turned to more socially aggressive responses as consequences, which again, is just modeling for your child then what they need to do when they feel offended. Mm-hmm. So being able to take a deep breath, not like praising your child, obviously, for what they did, but being present, being calm, not not needing to be indifferent, but being caring, caring and curious, basically. Okay. And so if, if a parent is not able to get there yet, it sounds like some <laughs> intentional wellness work yes. or... What would you recommend? (laughs) (laughs) Walk into the other room. If the the response is either I'm going to blow up at my child, uh, please take a break in the other room. You do not need to be present. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then I could imagine this causing like tension too between um, parents or, 
you know, partner caregivers, um, too, of like the different ways of responding or people having different abilities to be regulated or just as every child is different, every parent is different. And so being as much as possible on the same page is great. Also having a little bit of, um, that emotional bank account between caregivers like built up would be helpful as well because then you are able to at that point like not also then take what would have been vented on the child to the partner as well or to whoever is there and can you say more about that emotional bank account what, what do you yes. mean by that okay, that's i love that research and couples work which actually extends quite well into all kinds of relationships Uh and so if you think about uh, a relationship between a partner or or with a child or with a coworker, and you think about it as have a bank account and it's not this for that it is working together to fill the bank account so that if a withdrawal needs to be made it doesn't go into the red a withdrawal might look like an interaction that might be misinterpreted, some miscommunication, um, something not happening how someone wants, and then they're then in this negative space with the other person in the relationship. And so putting money into that emotional bank account, basically, would be any sort of positive interaction, um, good communication, uh, spending time together, uh, writing notes to each other, giving gifts, uh, quality time, things that not a lot of people have a lot of time for. Right. like love language is that sort of thing. Those also apply across the board too. Nice. Okay. I love that emotional bank account. I'm guessing a lot of our families who are um, parenting children from hard places, like, well, you might be a single parent, so you may not have the partner in crime or partner in parenting, but, um, but for those that, that do have a partner, a spouse, um, that, yeah, this can be really trying obviously on that relationship too. Yeah. There is actually some research about how, yeah, that has been more trying and the results have been hard, hard and created a lot more single parent families. Okay. So if you, if it's hard, you're not alone. That's reassuring, I guess. (laughs) It is doable and it takes work, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's everything. Absolutely. Okay. Um, let's see. What are, um, did you get to share all the appropriate interventions and? The ones that were there. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to um, go into some strategies then to help our youth recover from engaging in aggressive trauma behaviors? depends on the child as well and what their triggers are so if the triggers are being alone taking space may not be the appropriate response if the trigger is being alone then coming alongside them being present um distraction but not reward uh so like if the kid really wants to be on the tablet that it would not be a good distraction to help them calm down necessarily they may need to go for a walk or they may need to play outside for a few minutes that sort of thing um talking across the board isn't necessarily a good way to come down from a situation like that. It's a good way to process it once once the child is regulated again. Um, if 
triggers are people being too close or present or in their space or that sort of thing. Um, giving them some space might be the appropriate tr- uh, response for that. And of course, um, with what age they are, making sure that that is appropriate as well. So like, you're not going to have your two year old spend like four hours by themselves. That's not, <laughs> not appropriate, but, um, but something that might be if, if, uh, if they're triggered by someone's presence, like having, having them away for a bit and just a few minutes though, the younger they are, the fast or the longer passage of time is. So keeping that in mind too, five minutes for you could be an eternity for a four year old. And, and what about the attachment piece when we think about separating? Yes. So always saying that you're coming back or that you're right out over here, never like leaving the house or that sort of thing. Um, creating a time frame. So like, I'm going to give you five minutes to chill out in your room. I will be in the living room. Come out when you're ready. You do not have to stay in there for the full five minutes. If you are, if you are ready to come out and talk, mm-hmm. but always creating a boundary. If you are creating space, um, and if you are going to spend more time with them as well, just be present and be aware and look for those clues. Again, you're that feelings detective, looking for clues, making sure that because they can't regulate just yet, you're there to co-regulate with them. And what if um, you have children that get triggered by another child's um, verbal aggression or teasing, you know, kind of the bullying aggression? Uh-huh. Yes. And then that can lead to the physical um, aggression in another child. Because it's, you know, when yes. we just have a, one parent, one child, or two parents, one child, it um, seems a little bit, well, maybe not to all listeners, but it seems like um, that's more uh, achievable right. because we have the adult level ability to navigate our own intentional wellness and our own regulation. But what if we're working with multiple children in our house who have different issues of emotional dysregulation and different issues around aggressive behaviors from trauma? Well, one of the pieces is uh, supervision. So staying close. I know it, it might seem like, oh, they're nine. They can do all these independent things. But if they are the one like poking at the other one who's going to blow up, they may need much more uh, proximity uh-huh. <laughs> by a caregiver, treating them more like they are too because they are not making good decisions yet and those pieces aren't engaging in their brain as they should be. Um, and then the ones that are becoming reactive, giving them strategies as well. So um, if so-and-so is starting to do X, Y, Z, come closer to me or let's go in the other room or... Um, and something that is not a less preferred activity or what might seem like a punishment, um, because that way they will feel like they have a little more control over it because they may not have as much control. Uh, so giving them that control piece of coming up with another strategy for them to implement uh, rather than just being physical. Uh, and, and what if, um, I love that kind of how to teach the skills or the strategies to the child that's being reactive does that happen in front of the child who is poking because that could could be escalating does that happen when everything's calm like how how do you navigate that that? definitely a calm and individualized piece 
Nice. So they may need some work between them, like some sibling work between them, but uh, not giving the, the poking child more ammunition and not shaming the reactive child. Okay. And um, what work, you know, you gave that really, so proximity for the poking child, what individual kind of scripting conversation might you have with the poking child? (laughs) Well, it depends on, it depends on the age and it depends on the kind of folks. So yes, yes. Uh, Some of it might just be that they need more stimulation too. And so if they're busy, give them some busy activities that they might, or some responsibilities as well. Again, not as a reward for what they're doing, but at age appropriate, like, oh, this is your responsibility. So we need you to step up. Anything that is the opposite of shame-based for either of them, uh, because shame doesn't get anyone anywhere and it just closes them in. So yeah, give the busy poker something to do, <laughs> certain jobs, something that needs to happen all the time, um, and something that can, if there are interactions with the other children, something that can be supervised until they are otherwise able to control their actions. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, excellent. And um, what about... Um, do you have any other scenarios? I think I might have, in asking questions, stopped your stream of thought on um, <laughs> strategies to help youth recover from engaging in aggressive trauma behaviors. I know you talked about a few scenarios of like what might come up. Are there any others that you wanted to mention? Um, nothing is coming into mind now. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no, this has been really good. Um, I know that we have um, parents who are really concerned um, with aggression and, and violence in particular in their household, like towards them. It tends to be toward the mother as the primary caregiver, although not always. Um, and then it can be directed at other children in the home. Yeah. But um, do you have any uh, strategies um, for how to handle and navigate that, especially if it's a foster youth? in your home, which makes it even that much more delicate, I think. But then it could also be a child who's permanently in the home, adopted or in guardianship with a relative caregiver. Um, Do you have any strategies for the parent to how to respond to that violence from the child? Yeah. Is there making sure that there's always a a way out, a way to protect yourself and um, the other children? Um, Again, thinking of it as a, a medical condition, you're not going to leave the house without medication. So likewise, you're also going to have a backup plan on how to keep everybody safe. Um, if that takes a little more supervision, if it takes um, having a separate space for the, for the child, like the, their own room so that they can cool off in, um, or being able to remove yourself and the other children, um, yes, because I know that, that lately there's been a lot of, of concern about like calling for help if you need to call the cops and that sort of thing as they're not all trained uh, to deal with mental health and that sort of thing. And so then as much as possible, being sure that um, if, if you're not able to connect or to pull everyone away in an appropriate way having uh access to like 
the mobile response team or other crisis responders might also be good. So um, MRT in Contra Costa County, uh, there, there's for children and adults. Uh, I believe there's also MRT in Alameda County. And so um, that is anyone can call. Anyone can call. And then to continue with that sort of crisis response, uh, I think if you need Medi-Cal or um, access to another funding source, but that is one way to be able to um, make sure if you need extra help and you don't necessarily have to call 911, um, you're able to connect with a clinician who might be able to help de-escalate as well. Okay, great. And um, do you have any suggestions about um, repair? How do we work with our child um, to repair and heal after this has happened, especially if it's happening daily or multiple times a day? Yeah, so there's a difference between loving someone and liking them. And in the English language, we get a lot of that confused. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Love is a choice. Like, yeah, there's a feeling. But love is a choice. And um, the caregiver has chosen that child. Like, literally chosen it. Uh, Actually, one of my brothers is adopted, and uh, the siblings that were his age used to do the we were moms were the kids and he'd be like, mom chose me. She did not have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. so, uh, with that being able to, um, to reinstill, like I've chosen you, you are chosen. I don't like what happened and I don't like the result here, but I, you know, uh, there are moments that I really do like what's happening with you as well. And so refocusing that, refocusing that, because you are creating the narrative that they are internalizing of who they are and their identity. Mm -hmm. And when you were talking about uh, attachment, self-regulation, and uh, competency, ARC, that is like the pinnacle of all the work that is done to help ground the caregivers and the work that's done with the kids for their own internal resourcing and skills is this like narrative of who they are is it the trauma and the response that's controlling them or do they have some sort of internalized control over themselves and what life looks like? And so every single interaction, especially if it's happening multiple times a day, is like, yes, that was not, that wasn't good. That wasn't cool. However, you are loved and you are chosen and we together can do better. Now, the next time that happens, that doesn't mean that that you're still not loved you're still not chosen but then like because that is on the message that a lot of these kids have gotten like you're not wanted you're not chosen and you're not loved you're definitely not liked Mm -hmm. (laughs) so using each interaction and it i know parents often get concerned that uh the message will become i can do whatever i want i have a blank check sort of a thing but Mm -hmm. in fact they're able to start learning, okay, this still has a consequence. I still have to make it right, but I am loved and I am chosen. And if they're able to reestablish that attachment, they're able to internalize that identity and then move forward in, in a more healthy way. And what still would, a lot of work. yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What would be some examples for like physical violence to make it right? What would you oh. recommend? Well, especially, so, especially if, like, let's say the, the caregiver was, was injured, that sort of thing, like, the kid would need to, like, bring ice, make sure they have what later, 
if it was like a serious injury, like can the caregiver, is the caregiver not able to use their arm for something? Like, well, then, then it's the child's responsibility to help them do that. And not in a way that is punitive or shameful, but uh, like we're going, that, that's what happened during this time. And so this is what we're going to do to make that right. Does that make sense? Yes. And, and I'm sure age appropriate (laughs) as well. (laughs) Um, what about damaged property? Like, um, if you have a child who throws or, um, is scribbling in permanent marker all over things when they're angry. Then they need to help clean it up once they've calmed down. And that might create another situation where they get triggered, but sitting through that again and, not moving on to the next thing if possible until that is taken care of so like they might scribble and then calm down and then you're like we got to clean this up and then they're like ah and then wait that out and then come back to it we're going to clean it up maybe sit with them while they do it or whatever that is but making sure that that still happens and what if the parents are at the exhausted phase where the, the, because it's happening multiple times a day, the follow-up isn't happening in a timely manner? Like, um, yeah. I, I just think like some of our parents are probably <laughs> feeling overwhelmed and exhausted. And if it's happening frequently and it's time yes. for bed and, you know, how, how do we repair if we're not consistent on helping them repair? Right. <laughs> eventually be taken care of leave it till till you do have the wherewithal to sit there with them and if there's if there's um financial damage you know like it's something that is bigger to need repaired how would you navigate that with a young child or different age children well what it might be what that would cost right so if they get an allowance put having them put something towards that if they get a special toy or whatever like is that special toy like um gonna be borrowed for the next week or so to make up for this sort of thing like making it something that's age appropriate but that they are still putting an effort into repairing okay great and um yeah this is all so helpful (laughs) do you have any (laughs) other practical tips or resources I know you've mentioned a lot um but anything else before we close to share with our our families today? Um, I mean, the JRI is a, is a great resource. So the Justice Resource Institute, um, they have done just so much work over the last 32 years um, towards uh, helping families and getting the research behind what they're doing. Um, yeah. And then also, like, realizing that there are multiple environments for your kids, too. So if you are able to come together with school or church or whatever like uh, social activities you guys are involved in sports um making sure that if everyone is on the same page that is providing care um that would be great as well as long as that's safe for them okay great well eva many of our parents i know are struggling with this issue they're in the trenches dealing with aggressive trauma behaviors daily so i'm really grateful to you i just want to thank you for this conversation Um, your recommended strategies. I know I have a lot of takeaways from our conversation for my own parenting, and I'm sure our listeners do as well. So thank you. 
thank you for the opportunity. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Help One Child podcast. We hope that you found helpful insights and practical parenting tips from your time with us. See you next time.